I have uh, read this before. I'm going to read it again just to set the table to kind of uh, give a little illustration. Uh, and it comes from Robert Capens, and he, he asks the question, let me tell you why, or, or uh, the statement, let me tell you why God made the world. And he uses an analogy. One afternoon before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, new ways of being and new kinds of being, beings to be. And as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, Really? This is absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And God the Holy Spirit said, Terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in, and after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and light and frogs. Pine cones kept dropping all over the place, and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and mastodons, grapes and geese, tornadoes and tigers, and men and women everywhere to taste them, to juggle them, to join them, and to love them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and said, Wonderful, this is just what I had in mind. Tov, 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 are good. Um, And all God the Son and God the Holy Spirit could think of to say was the same thing. Tov, tov, tov. So they shouted together, Tov, miod. Very good. And they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like how great it was for beings to be and how clever of the Father to think of the idea and how kind of the Son to go to all the trouble of putting it together and how considerate of the Spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing. And forever and ever they told old jokes and the Father and the Son drank their wine in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other, world without end, amen. So he says, it is, I grant you, a crass analogy. But crass analogies are the safest. Everybody knows that God is not three old men throwing olives at each other. Not everyone, I'm afraid, is equally clear that God is not a cosmic force, or a principle of being, or any other delish of celestial sweet dessert we might choose to call him. Accordingly, I give you the central truth that creation is the result of a Trinitarian bash and leave the details of the analogy to sort themselves out as best they can. And I think uh, what I'm going to be arguing today, or presenting a case for, is the necessity of analogy when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity or, frankly, any other doctrine or any other thing we know. Uh, But to say that something is essential is not to say that it is sufficient. Uh, In other words, it can't do the job by itself. In fact, to try to use analogy to understand God and use only analogy is extremely dangerous and, and a bad idea. But to say that something is necessary, but it's necessary but not sufficient, the thing that makes, the thing that is necessary and sufficient is scripture. It is the revelation of God. It is the absolute clear uh, revealing of who God is. 
But analogy becomes a way, if you will, to supplement that for us. Calvin talks about God uh, speaking down to us, uh, kind of a baby talk, lisping to us, uh, accommodating us as human beings in our limited capacity. And, and since God created us, we are created beings, we relate to the rest of God's creation. And therefore, in order for us to know things, it, it always has to be known in the context of who we are and where we live and what we already know and what we see and what we've experienced. And God's Word becomes that focusing uh, absolute thing, the, the, the instruction manual that tells us how to think about the world that we're seeing. So as we learn about the Trinity from Scripture... We then look at the world, and I think we begin to see things that match up, that we might not have paid attention to before. And so I'm going to have a number of things to say about analogy. Um, All analogies break down. Uh, An analogy is simply a way of saying something is like something else in some way, not necessarily in every way. That's where we can get into trouble. So I've frequently been warned away from all analogies of the Trinity, but I think that is perhaps an overstatement. He has made himself known through the things that he has made, uh, which would be by way of analogy, including his invisible attributes, including his Godhead. Uh, Romans 1. An analogy, again, is a similarity between like features of two things on which a comparison may be based. That is, uh, for example, an analogy between a heart and a pump. And so we have heard things, and we're going to talk about some bad analogies. We probably, most of us who've read anything on this have heard things like Trinity is like an egg, a shell, a yolk, a white, but it's one egg. A Trinity is like a tree. Uh, or states of water, solid, liquid, gas, or like being a father, brother, son. Uh, Roy alluded to some of those. It is true that some analogies can and often do lead to heretical ideas, and thus um, uh, the opening quote I think that you had, Roy, is talking about some of the dangers here of, uh, of as we go into this subject. There's a lot at stake here, and so care and caution And I would absolutely say that about the use of any analogies. Um, And so we should avoid bad analogies, and we should be very careful with the good ones and understand their limited nature. But again, I'm arguing for something a little different. I'm I'm certainly saying we should be careful with them because there are dangers. But I'm I'm not only arguing that they... uh, I would argue against the idea that all analogies should be avoided. I'm saying analogies cannot be avoided. God is logical, and we are analogical. That is, we think in terms of analogies. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or in the beginning was the Logos. He was the logic. Uh, He is the logic. We can know some of what God knows, but we don't know it the same way he knows it. 
God knows immediately. He knows how many socks are in your sock drawer. He doesn't have to go look. He doesn't have to go count. He just knows. He's omniscient. I can know how many socks are in the sock drawer, but I have to know immediately, meaning I have to do something. I have to go look. I have to count. And if the number of socks that I come up with agrees with God, then we call that truth. If I, if God says there's 12 pairs and I say there's 11, God is always right and I'm always, I'm wrong. Now, if I happen to, if I come up with 12, then I've arrived at the truth. But I can miscount. I can be mistaken. I can, there are all kinds of things in my, in the immediate process. Uh, especially if it, in my case, if it involves uh, addition and subtraction or any other mathematical process, there is, as I was ta- told often in my, when I received my math exams back, you had careless errors. <laughs> uh, so my world is full of careless errors. God has no careless errors. So in other words, um, we can't help but use analogy. Uh, this is like this other thing in these ways. So uh, we're tempted sometimes when we especially come to a subject like the Trinity or infinity uh, to simply fall back on the fact that God, the, the infinite God, is a mystery. But we have to be careful for some mysteries or secrets have been revealed. So Paul writes in Ephesians 3, 1 through 7, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, It has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, we would say the Bible, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. In other words, we wouldn't have known this, but God told us. God told me, and I'm telling you. Creation itself, though, also provides uh, an inescapable analogy of our knowing the triune God. And again, uh, Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God is sending out a message, but because we're unrighteous, because we're sinners, we have a bias against God. That information that's coming in that is revealing God, we misinterpret. We look for another explanation. It doesn't, it's like the radio, uh, uh, station is sending out a crystal clear signal, but we've dropped our receiver. And there's all this static. So we're broken, but it, it is speaking, and it is speaking clearly so that God says, uh, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. We're created in the image of the triune God. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, it, so from the very beginning, his invisible 
attributes, this is a great phrase, are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I'm going to be alluding to C.S. Lewis a good bit in this talk because I felt like that was a little safer than me just launching out here on my own. But C.S. Lewis uses several illustrations to help the layman get a feeling of what the doctrine of the Trinity implies. And so if we think about analogy as being an aid, a way of helping us think about things, as long as we're not viewing those analogies as authoritative or apart from Scripture, uh, I think that's where the safety is. Most common illustrations ultimately fall into one of the ancient heresies of modalism, again, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three ways or modes that the one divine person has revealed himself in history, or tritheism, that is, Father, Son, and Spirit are three separate but co-equal entities. But we have, and so it's argued that we have no clear analogies in our experience to draw from, but Lewis said that he had thought, uh, sought over the years to find illustrations, which, by the way, is just another way of saying an analogy, an illustration, and one that seemed to hold up uh, somewhat uh, was the analogy of time having three aspects, past, present, and future, but all partaking of the same nature. He said he tried this out on one of his colleagues who shot the illustration down because it was impersonal. But Lewis was not adverse to using impersonal illustrations to help illuminate some aspect of the being of Trinity. I'll, I'll just go back. I mentioned this last night. Yeah, that's the nature of an analogy, right? It's not. We're not saying it's like this other thing in every aspect. Love is like a red, red rose, not in every single aspect. Love, a rose is not love. We're not saying they're identical. We're saying that in some way, maybe this is. It could be poetic language. And so we draw certain, in fact, arguably, and of course in the Psalms, there's a lot of poetic language, that poetic language yields and reveals a different kind of knowledge, arguably even a deeper knowledge than just straight um, kind of uh, analytic language uh, might do. So if, if God is like a mother hen, In what way is he like a mother hen? Does he have feathers? Does he have a beak? I mean, now we're you know sounding like we're being irreverent. What what would we think of when we say God is like a mother hen? His care and his concern. So there's a knowledge that's communicated from Scripture there about God that's poetic and analogical, analytical, if you will, or there's an analogy here. God is like a mother hen in a certain way. Very limited, but very helpful. So Lewis, not averse to using impersonal illustrations uh, with some aspects of the Trinity, he says, for example, in a two-dimensional world, you still get straight lines, but many lines make one figure. So you could just think of a line drawing on a piece of paper. In a three-dimensional world, many figures make one solid body. Think of a cube. In other words, as you advance 
to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind behind you the things you found on the simpler levels. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler levels. And he goes on to apply this to the Trinity. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings, just as in two dimensions, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in new ways which we, who do not live on that level, cannot imagine. You find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. So on one original illustration Lewis used for the Trinity was to draw again from geometry, you know that in space you can move in three ways, uh, left or right, backward or forward, up or down. Every direction is either one of these three or a compromise between them. So you could go forward, backward, up or down, but you could also go forward and up, uh, backward and down. Um, so you got that conception. Every direction is either, again, one of the three or a compromise between them, and they are called three dimensions. If you're using only one dimension, you could draw only a straight line. If you're using two, you could draw a figure, say a square, and a square is made up of four straight lines. Now a step further, if you have three dimensions, you can build what we call a solid body, and a cube is made up of six squares. A world of one dimension would be a straight line. In a two-dimensional world, you still get straight lines, but many lines make one figure, and a three-dimensional world, you still get figures, but many figures make one solid body. In other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you don't leave behind the things you found at the simpler levels. You still have them, but again, combined in new ways. So in God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Of course, we can't fully conceive of a being like that. I'm going to go back to the thing I gave last night when I read about the simple cell. Darwin described the simple cell. Denton comes along and says, well, what we've discovered in this world of atomic microscopes, if we blow that cell up to be the size of New York City, is it's anything but a simple cell. In fact, simple nothing to do with it it's it's so so here's my question after having read his description of that cell did you like me walk away saying ah the cell's not simple did we learn anything about the cell by looking at it more closely now could you explain how the cell works to me i can't in other words, I didn't go away from that description saying, oh, I now comprehend the cell. But I did go away from that description saying, wow, that's glorious. 
That's beautiful. That's amazing. I want to know more about the cell. What are those little portals that open and close? What do they do? And how do they interact with these other things over here? And so by knowing more about the, the simple cell, first that it's not simple, so I can jettison that word. And so, so as we study God, we find out he's not just the old man upstairs. And the more we know him and actually the more incomprehensible, actually when I read, when I read Denton's description of the cell, I walked away thinking, this is incomprehensible to me. I'm not a biologist. I don't understand all that. But you see, I don't have to understand all of that to understand some of that. And so I'm suggesting that when we use analogy, if we look at it like that and say these are tools that can perhaps help us look at one from one angle at God. And then we move over here and we look at him from another angle. And he's infinite. So there's, you know, there's, there's all kinds of directions to look. And as we discover new things, and I think what this in the, in the geometry illustration or analogy, he's simply saying, let's find something, something else in the world that we do know that has, that we would say, uh, where we use these different levels of understanding of something and we add to our knowledge of it and our ability to conceive. Um, so, He says, of course, we can't fully conceive of a being like that, three in one, uh, just as if we were uh, so made that we perceived only two dimensions in space, we could never properly conceive of a cube. There has been talk, I couldn't begin to explain it and won't even try, of a fourth dimension. Um in the scientific world, but I don't know what that is, but uh, I've thought of it like this. We have five senses. What if there was a sixth one? I think this might be helpful here. Um, I'm doing this spontaneously. Try to imagine a a sixth sense. It's pretty hard, isn't it? But I couldn't have imagined... If there had only been four senses, I still couldn't have imagined the fifth one. Except what I can say is I at least know what a sense is, right? I could say, well, whatever it is, it's some way of interacting with the world, some way of perceiving the world, right? So what if in heaven, what if in the new heavens and the new earth, God gave us ten senses instead of five? Could he do that? He's infinite. So I might not be able to conceive of what the sixth or the seventh or the eighth sense might be, but since I have some conception of what a sense is, I can at least let my imagination work in relation to the things I do know about senses. So um, we can get, as he says, a faint notion of it. And when we do we are then for the first time in our lives getting some positive idea, however faint, of something super personal, something more than a person. It is something we could never have guessed at, yet 
once we've been told, and this is, again, we go to Scripture and it's revealed to us, once we've been told, one almost feels one ought to have been able to guess it because it fits so well with all the things we already know. Lewis commented, quote, It is true, I do not understand why it is vulgar or common or offensive in speaking of the Holy Trinity to illustrate from plain and solid geometry the conception that what is self-contradictory on one level may be consistent on another. Another illustration or analogy he uses is imagine the Trinity as the great dance. And this finds its roots in the work of Gregory of uh, Nansanas, let's see if I'm saying this right, Nazianus, Anzus, excuse me, Archbishop of Constantinople, and one of the three great uh, Cappadocian theologians who did much to shape the development of Trinitarian understanding in the ancient Greek-speaking church. Here the illustration is employed by Lewis to point out the difference of the Christian God to the absolute monotheism in Greek philosophy. It also serves to contrast the Christian understanding of God with that of post-A.D. 70 Judaism and Islam. So Lewis wrote this. This comes from Mere Christianity. And that, by way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions, that in Christianity God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you will think, uh, think, if you'll not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father, and he's dealing with the economic trinity here, the union of the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know this is almost inconceivable, but look at it thus. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trade union, people talk about the spirit of that family or club or trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving which they would not have if they were apart. It's as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, this is critical, it is not a real person, it is only rather like a person, but that is just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the father and son is a real person, is in fact the third person of the three persons who are God. Now again, I think what he's saying is, look, these these may be incremental, maybe they help a little bit. And one good thing about analogies, if you say, that didn't help at all, then throw it away. You don't get to throw scripture away. Uh, but analogies might or might not help us see, grasp. And if they don't do anything else, they make us think. They push us. Well, how is it like that? But how is it not like that? Because part of definition is not just what something is, but what it isn't. How How is the Trinity like a dance? And how is it not like a dance? How is it like a person and not like a person? 
So again, I think these are useful tools, but not the basis for building our doctrinal positions. Another impersonal illustration or analogy that Lewis draws from everyday life involves two books stacked on one another on a table. The lower book supports the one above it so that the upper book actually never touches the table upon which it rests. There is no before or after to this arrangement. It simply is. It's an eternal, imagine they've been sitting there forever, an eternal, unchangeable relationship of the lower book supporting the one that rests upon it. If we were to imagine this as an eternal condition, this would give us some insight of the dependence of the Son on the Father. In the strictest sense, this is not Trinitarian because the Spirit is not in view here. Lewis uses this analogy to give us an accurate, albeit inadequate, glimpse into the Father's relationship to the Son. And from this impersonal dependence of the top book upon the one beneath which supports it, he makes the step into the impersonal relationship between the Father, or the interpersonal relationship between the Father and the Son. The first person is called the Father, the second the Son. We say the first begets or produces the second. We call it begetting, not making, because what he produces is of the same kind as himself. In that way, the word father is the only word to use. But unfortunately, it suggests that he is there first, just as a human father exists before his son. But this is not so. Uh, There is no before or after about it. And that's why it's important to make clear how one thing can be the source or cause or origin of another without being before it. So the son exists because the father exists but there never was a time before the Father produced the Son. Um, Rush Dooney observed that the uh, Trinity, this is a case where also when we know about the Trinity, we look at the world and it begins to, we see uh, the Trinity being expressed in things in the world, and we we alluded to that um, in the last talk about, uh, when we talked about the one and the many. Um, thus we will see an analogous, uh, we see analogous things in human relationships that are ultimately explained and understood by the Trinity. So here is Rush Dooney's statement. Orthodox Christianity has asserted another answer to the problem of the one and the many. Remember now, the one and the many, the one is the group, and the many are all the individuals. So the one is the church. And then the individual members, the one is the family, then in the family there's the father and the mother and the children. In, a, in, the, world, in the country there's the, the country and then there's the citizens. So the one is the collective, is everybody together, the, the big thing, and the many are all the individuals. So um, Orthodox Christianity has asserted another answer to the problem and to, to make clear the, uh, that answer, certain elementary distinctions are necessary. Theology and philosophy distinguish between the ontological trinity and the economical trinity in speaking of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are each a personality, and together they constitute the triune and exhaustively personal, totally self-conscious God. God is totally self-conscious, meaning that he has no hidden, unknown aspects of his being, 
no unexploited potentiality. He is actuality, self-conscious, actuality, self-conscious, and personal. Each person of the Trinity is equally God. Since both the one and the many are equally ultimate in God, it immediately becomes apparent that these two seemingly contradictory aspects of being do not cancel one another, but are equally basic to the ontological trinity. One God, three persons. Again, since temporal unity and plurality are the products and the creation of this triune God, Neither the unity nor the plurality can demand the sacrifice of the other to itself. Thus, man and government are equally aspects of created reality. The locus of Christianity is both the believer and the church. They are not independent of or prior to one another. The wishes of husband and wife do not take priority over marriage nor does the institution of marriage have primacy over the partners to it. Marriage, indeed, is a type of an eternal reality. But man is himself created in the image of God. Education must be geared both to the individual and to society, but above all, to God. Now, um, I'm not going to use all my time here, or say the time we've allotted, but I want to end with one that I've been thinking about. Uh, and that is the analogy of the family. Um, I think the Bible does give us an image or an analogy that is very useful in helping us understand certain aspects of the Trinity, and that that comes from Genesis 1 and 2. Like all analogies, it's not intended to be identical in every way. But let me start with Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So if the Trinity is indeed an eternal communion, a common union of love, we talked about that last night, Man and woman were created, among other reasons, to expand that communion or that community of love. The eternal trinity is a community. It's an eternal communion of love. And since the triune God made us in his image, he likewise made us for the same kind of loving communion, which is Trinitarian in nature. We were meant to be together, to be together in love. So Adam and Eve were created after God's image. This means they were to reflect the communion of the Trinity. This is revealed in the fact that Adam was not created in isolation, but in covenant with the triune God himself. He walked with God, uh, but there was still something missing, and thus God declared that it's not good that man should be alone, and so... As Capon might say, the triune God decided to throw a ball and uh, they invited us to the dance. John 17, 22 through 23, Jesus said, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect or mature in one, 
and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The Trinity is a community, and so too we're made to live in community or communion. We live and work together in collaboration. So in the family, in love and service, we have the same mission. Like the Trinity, we have different roles. There's the economy. Nevertheless, each of those roles was designed to function in loving, harmonious communion with the other. And let me pause and say one of the things that's helpful, I think, as we think about the analogy of the family to the Trinity is we have to think in terms of a sinless family. The sin, of course, throws sand in the gears. If we have a sinless husband and a sinless wife and sinless children in a perfect communion of love, we have an image and a reflection of the Trinity, an analogy, not an identity, but an analogy, a reflection, if you will, a shadow. Oneness or communion involves having common goals, a unified will, and joint activities. Different activities combine in harmony to produce a beautiful result. In fact, living in community, we never act alone. We are always connected. This is true in reverse, by the way, even when we're in conflict and the results are strife, anger, bitterness, and so forth. And you've heard me say many times, we never act alone. Even your private thoughts are not private in the sense they impact others. When you're more godly, everybody benefits, everybody in your circle. The world benefits, ultimately, but certainly your family. And when you're sinful, it's the other way around, right? Everybody, nothing we do or think is isolated from others. We are, God made us to be intimately connected, especially with our wives and children. And then we can take, I think the church is another analogy of this. So thus, the family that's living in true loving communion always acts in the best interest of the whole and not in mere self-interest. This is what we call cooperation. Every one of you as followers of Christ have an obligation to live in loving communion at your house with your family, and you should be asking how you can sacrifice love in order to contribute to a greater communion. Um, think about the fact that Eve also in this, uh, I, I, wanna, I don't want to carry all this too far, but I think this just bears some further thought. But you have Adam as if he represents the father. I think we have Eve who, who is begotten, as it were, uh, uh, taken from the side of Adam. He, woman is from man. Um, and the two become one flesh. There's a unity, uh, and there's also an economy. Two persons have become one. What happens when children come? Now we have a family. We've got a father, a mother, and a child. Have the three become one? The child has proceeded from the father and the mother. And again, this is an analogy. It's not intended to be identity. But I think this 
helps us get some grasp of how we being made in the image of the triune God are reflective of that in this world. And again, I'm just scratching the surface here because I think there's some more depth to this that could be uh, fleshed out and thought about. Paul picks up on the fact that there is something in the relationship difference between the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So again, some kind of relational explanation here, an analogy is being drawn. Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, points out that Eve is a person quite distinct from Adam, and yet she has all her life and being from Adam. She came from his side, is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and is one with him in the flesh. Far, He said this is a far better analogy than leaves, eggs, and liquids and uh, that reflects a personal God, a son who is distinct from his father, and yet who is the very being of the Father and, is, and who is eternally one with him in the Spirit. So those are just some thoughts. Um, I'm not asserting this in any kind of... Uh, in fact, I'm throwing it out for your consideration. Uh, have at it uh, as a pinata, if you will. And uh, I'd love to get some of your questions or thoughts on that now or later. Yeah, Roy. Um, I was going to mention uh, Lori Sayers. I intended to do that when I talked earlier, but uh, she also does the exact same thing you asked the show she's supposed to hear and her book The Mind of the The Mind of what? Okay. Dorothy Sayers, Mind of the Maker. Okay. Okay, thank you. Any other thoughts or questions or ideas about this? Yeah, Lance. Nathan would have liked that. <laughs> Works better on a whiteboard. <laughs> I think there is a, a it, it seems that everything that God created, not only 
nature of how you create us, and then our tendency toward creation and making furniture or something like that is probably it makes sense that there are pictures everywhere of aspects of God. One of the exciting things to me, and I'll go back to what I was saying about the simple cell, because I, I, that wasn't my plan, but the more I've thought about it just in the last little bit illustrates what I was saying, is, is in thinking about these things, again, we bump into problems almost immediately. If, if we're thinking very much, wait a minute, I don't know about that. But in thinking about, as we try to think about the Trinity, one thing that just the process does is makes us realize how glorious it is, how fascinating, how interesting, how beautiful, how uh, attractive it is. Now, see, Thomas Jefferson hated the Trinity. He just despised the doctrine. He said basically it was nonsense, nonsense to him. So I think that's kind of typical of belief and unbelief is how we uh, respond to what God says in his word. But I find these, the the use, I don't want to go crazy with analogy, but what I want to do is have my antenna up. I want to be looking at the world I live in, not as some static background noise, but as God's revelation of himself. And I should be cautious, and I think we've talked about this some when we do scripture, where we're looking uh, as we should, as Jesus has taught us to do at the Old Testament to find him, but we don't need to go crazy with that. We need checks and balances. We need somebody to challenge all of us, whether we're doing it in Scripture or whether we're doing it in looking at the world around it, or even what I, the illustration I gave about the family. All the cautions should be put in place, and we should be careful, uh, but, but I don't think the solution is to just say, well, because there are dangers, we're not going to do it at all because I think there are enormous benefits from doing it. But it also brings us back to why we need each other, because I need you, and you need we need each other to provide those guardrails in, in this work, and that's why I think the church is, what's, is who ultimately speaks, not me. It's not a bunch of us all individually saying, here's what it means to me. It is us collectively with the church historical, obviously with the scriptures, the foundation, moving forward and growing in our understanding. Yes. There's one a really fun analogy in the Trinity. Um, I was listening to Ken Myers, the, the, the Morris Hill Audio Journal, mm-hmm. which is years ago. He had, uh, I think his name was Jeremy Blakey, on his show, and he wrote a book called Resounding Theology. He used music to illustrate the, the Trinity. He actually had a piano while he was in the interview, and he did, he did a three-note chord. He goes, listen to this. Here's one note, another one, another one. They all stand alone, and they all fill all the space in this room. And now let's play them together. And it's, a, it's this whole other tone, but they're all still there. They're all still present with each other, and they're playing with each other. It's really cool. Uh, That's great.
inquiry that we've missed out on, perhaps, to some degree. There is an aesthetic, there is a delight that comes to studying God and His ways, and that we are really to revel in that as, as believers, as Christians. Um, and, I mean, something like my talk puts people to sleep, you know, Greek words. And you got to do that, too, but there's an aspect, there's an aesthetic quality to the study of God. And I think, you know, certainly, I think the Orthodox Church actually can help us there a little bit. I think their approach to theology is much more aesthetic than something like we are used to. I think, I don't know, I think something like the Trinity brings us into that. Like, you can't, you have to reckon with the beauty of the Trinity. Not just the technical nature of God, but the beauty of it and how it, of course, it comes out in music and creativity and those sorts of things. It's such a rich... I want to emphasize the Reeves book, Delighting in the Trinity, does that. I agree with what, what you're saying, and, and that you need both. See, I need the technical manual to give me the details and the, the whys and the hows and, the, and the, the, the accuracy, the precision. And I think that's what systematic theology is trying to do, put it in order. How does it relate to these other doctrines? Uh, what are some of the, what does the Greek word here mean? And what are the nuances that's important. It, I, I, here's an analogy of that. Let me go out to the, go out in the field and pick a flower, uh, uh, pull the plant up and bring it into the laboratory and dissect it, and describe all the constituent parts of the plant: the roots, the stem, the leaves, the, the petals, the stamen, and do that as accurately as possible. Draw pictures of it, magnify it. And then even describe how they work with each other. How's, how's this nutrition taken from the roots up into the plant and how does photosynthesis work and all the scientific stuff. But I also have to go back out and look at it in the field in all of its beauty. It's a flower. It's alive. It is created by God. It's a gift. It's um, it reproduces, it magnifies. It's, I have to see it in its glory, not just its constituent parts. And so I think that multiply that times a gazillion, and that's what we're dealing with the infinite God, is we don't ever want to be reduced to God in a laboratory, but we have to have that in order to fully appreciate, just like that simple cell. I can't see that. I need Michael Denton or somebody else to come along and do that and say, here's what you're missing. <laughs> you know, uh, there's, a, there's a gazillion of those going on in you right now, not just one, but millions and millions and millions of cells in you doing these things constantly. Wow. That, that ought to be the response, right? Well, now let's look up at the infinite God, transcendent and eminent and all the things we know about his attributes. And I think we don't do enough of that. You know, I think it's a wonderful exercise for me when I was in high school reading through Charnock's uh, Existence and Attributes of God. Kind of, I think it was one of the first big books I read. And you just realize we're just scratching the surface here on who God is. Uh, knowing, but knowing him is not the same as knowing about him. Yeah. And the Apostle Paul is a great example for us in that he was a master of doctrine of theology, and yet he also cried out, 
I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. Those are relationship terms. That's right. 